Missions. One of the most important tasks that the Christian has is ensuring that the gospel of Jesus Christ gets out to all the world, to all that can hear. As Kenyon Ridge prepares to give for missions, Listen in as Pastor Chris Chadwick preaches from the Word of God how to give to missions. 2 Corinthians chapter 9 in your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 9. If you've ever been to New York City, and we got folks here, uh, Josh and Vicki, who are from there. Uh, well, Josh isn't really from there, but he lived there for a while. I don't want to give you a claim to fame you don't deserve. Um, so... Uh, if, uh, if you've ever been to New York City, and I know many of you have, and you've walked around Times Square or the Broadway District, if you will, maybe even Central Park, you might come across guys who try to get you to play the shell game. If you don't know what the shell game is, they take basically three halves of a walnut, and they put a pea in it, and they have a little box normally, and they'll hide the pea in one, and they put it all, move it all around, and then they'll tell you, uh, basically, it's gambling. You give me, we'll gamble five bucks, and uh, if you know where the pea is, then I'll give you five. If you don't, then you have to give it to me. And uh, it's not uncommon to see that happen on a very, very regular basis in New York City. I mean, people come, and then the cops come, and they go running. I don't know if they'd still go running today in New York City, but back in the day, they used to run quite a bit when the cops would come. You'd see them, they'd be in the middle of the, of the game, and then they'd leave. And so I remember one time Debbie and I were in New York City um, back when it was safer, and uh, we were on 8th Street, and I verified it. We were on 8th Street. I looked last night, and, and we were on 8th Street, and there was a group of tourists around a guy. Now, here's the deal. When you're traveling in a touristy neighborhood, you always want to go where there's a bunch of people because you're about to see something you've never seen Probably sometimes something you shouldn't see, but you just kind of have to gamble a little bit, but keep the kids' eyes covered. And uh, we were there, and, and I saw a bunch of people there, and I'm just walking, and I see this guy playing a shell, the shell game. And I'm watching, and I know how it's going to go. It's, it's, a, it's a grifter's game. It's a con game. It's all of those things. And because I was one of the bigger guys in the crowd, the guy looked at me, and he said, Hey, you, sir, why don't you play? for free. I'm like, good, because I'm not playing for money. And he looked at me, and he did it, and he goes, where's the, where's the, the, the object? And I pointed to the, one of the things, and it was under there. He goes, he did it again. He goes, man, you're really good. I said, no, you're just going really slow. I know how this works. You're going to do better, and I'm going to lose. And he's like, no, I'll do the best I could. He did it, and I found it. He goes, see, you should bet me. And I was like, absolutely not. Absolutely not. I would not in any way bet you. And he said, well, why won't you bet me? And I said this, well, number one, you're going to change the way that you do it. You're going to change the way that you do it. And number two, there's a crowd of people around. I'm a Christian and I don't gamble. I said the word Christian and you should have saw them. They scattered like, like mad. And he looked at me and he goes, I promise, I promise I won't change anything. And I looked right at him and I said, I don't really believe that. I just don't really believe that. You wouldn't be out here if you didn't change. You wouldn't be out here if you were going to lose all the time. You wouldn't be out here to just give tourists a couple hundred dollars in the shell game. That's not how this works. I don't really believe that. He realized that I wasn't going to play his game, so he got up and moved to some people from the Midwest. And I think they played the game and they lost. 
I've titled today's message, Do You Really Believe That? When it comes to the Bible, do you really believe that? Can you, Christian, take God at his word? Do you believe that? Can you just go, I read the scripture, I see what the scripture says, and I believe what God says. Can you take God at his word? If you really do believe what the scripture says, it will change the way that you live. It will change the way that you think. You can't think the same and believe the word of God. It will have an impact on your thinking. It will have an impact on your actions. It will have an impact on your attitude. It will have an impact on your family. It will have an impact on your future. If you believe the word of God, it changes everything. Everything. If you really believe it. I'm reminded of the famed atheist Christopher Hitchens. His brother Peter is a, was at one time an atheist and began to study the scripture to disprove it and make fun of some friends and was gloriously convicted by the word of God and accepted Jesus Christ as his personal savior. Some people that I follow and know were talking to Christopher Hitchens one day and they said, Chris, why won't you become a Christian? Do you not believe in the claims of Christ? He said, no, I choose not to believe them. Well, why won't you become a Christian? These were his words. I'll never forget them. He said, if I become a Christian and I choose to believe the Bible, and he said, there's ample evidence to believe it, but if I choose to believe the Bible, then I'll have to change the way I think and I'll have to change the way I live if I really believe that. I'm sad to say Christopher Hitchens died and went into eternity, as far as we know, without Christ, without God. But he was onto something there. If I really believe the Bible, it's going to change the way that I live. Gene Simmons, the bassist for Kiss, said essentially the same thing to me when I witnessed to him. If I really believe the Bible, it'll change the way that I live, and I'm not sure that I want to change the way that I live. Do you really believe it? The city of Corinth is a, today a small city in Greece, beautiful small city filled with rich, deep history, a wonderful, wonderful place I'm told to visit. I've never had the privilege of going, but I, Debbie and I look forward to going there one of these days. In Paul's day, when the writer of 2 Corinthians, the city of Corinth was uh, under Roman rule and Greco-Roman rule. It was a prominent city, and specifically under the Roman occupation, it was the capital of the province. It was the strategic location for three main harbors. They controlled the northern and southern mainland travel, and they had three harbors, two on one side, one on the other of, a, of an isthmus or a piece of land that goes between the ocean, and they used to sail goods in on one side, and they would carry them over through a, a, a cool series of cables and, and men and, and travel, and they'd get them to the other side because it would save so much money and time, and, and because of its travel, uh, uh, blessing and, and controlling the mainland travel and because of the three main harbors it, it was a city of wealth like cities of uh, that are in harbor cities they're almost always a city of wealth they were a city of luxury Corinth was a luxurious city and it was also a city of 
tremendous immorality and people acting in ways that those folks do. And the Apostle Paul had went to Corinth after he was in Athens and the Apostle Paul started the church at Corinth. And, and let me just tell you, uh, I mean, it was a pretty cool work for a while and, and Paul was doing great things and, and, and God blessed. And, and now you have to fast forward till uh, Paul's third missionary journey. And on this third missionary journey, Paul has really one thrust of ministry uh, to encourage or two to encourage the churches on his missionary journey and to raise an offering for the Christians who are still in Jerusalem. See, the Christians in Jerusalem, the members of the church in Jerusalem were losing their jobs because of their faith in Jesus Christ. The Christians in Jerusalem were facing grave persecution. Uh, some of them were uh, having their houses taken from them. Some of them were having their houses even burned. They were shunned by their family. Matter of fact, the author of this book, Paul, is a single man. At one time he was married. We know that because he was a Pharisee. And most Bible historians believe that the Apostle Paul, uh, his wife probably divorced him after he became a Christian, and they literally would have had a funeral for him because he became a follower of Jesus Christ. I mean, the, the persecution was real that these folks in Jerusalem were going through. We heard last Sunday night, you never want to miss a Sunday night service at Canyon Ranch, last Sunday night... Uh, we had a man named Vinok Son, one of our Cambodian nationals who had to come to the U.S. for a family funeral. His wife's brother, she's from, she's from Long Beach, his wife's brother had died, so they were here, and he came, and he talked. We went out to dinner afterwards, and let me just tell you, to hear about the persecution that those folks are going through in Cambodia was, was just over the top. It was humbling and humiliating, humiliating in the sense of like they've given so much more to Jesus than I have. Well, these people were going through this persecution. Many had left the city of Jerusalem in fear of life or livelihood. But many had stayed in Jerusalem to see the work of God go forward. And I want to stop and say, I think it's applicable. I, we live in a time when all of the world's problems are blamed on California. I have the dubious honor sometimes of preaching all over the country, and it seems like everywhere you go, everybody blames California for everything. And if you have family in the Midwest or, or, or the Southeast or the Northeast, for that matter, even Washington State, I'm from there. We're weird up there. Everybody is blaming us for everything. And they say things like this, how long before you can get out of California? Or I hope California falls off into the ocean. And I tried to explain to them how that's really not a good idea. But nonetheless, it doesn't dissuade their opinion at all. And every problem in the world is blamed on our state. Can I just tell every one of you who have stayed in California and made it your life's goal to impact people with the gospel of Jesus Christ in California, thank you. I'm really tired of hearing people say, California needs Jesus, we're moving to Idaho. And it's always like they move to Idaho and it's always like they have these big plans and big dreams and God always tells them to move when there's a lot of equity in their house. When the housing market was upside down, nobody was called to leave California. Everybody stayed here. Everybody was happy, happy here. But as soon as equity went up, man, people were called to go all over the nation and, 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 and move and transfer. I just want to say thank you to those of you faithful servants of Jesus Christ who aren't running and hiding from a very difficult time to live in. It's not dissimilar. We're going through. 
Paul is writing these churches in 2 Corinthians 9, or this church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians 9, and we see in verses 1 and 2, a church with a heart for giving. A church with a heart for giving. He said, for us touching the ministering to the saints, it is superfluous for me to write to you. For I know the forwardness of your mind, for which I boast of you to them of Macedonia. That Achaia was, Achaia is just another word for Corinth. Achaia was ready a year ago and your zeal hath provoked very many. Paul says, says to the church at Corinth, he goes, it's touching the ministering of the saints, you're taking this offering, it's superfluous or a, over and above, or it's not really necessary for me to, to write to you about this, it's superfluous for me to write to you, it's kind of over the top, you wouldn't think I would have to say anything about it, he's commending them on this, he says, you know that I don't really need to do this, verse number two, for I know the forwardness or the willingness of your mind, or the desire that your mind has, or the desire that you have to give to those saints in Jerusalem who are struggling financially. I I know your willingness. I know your forwardness. The church at Corinth was an example here to the churches of Macedonia. Now in chapter 8, we looked at a couple weeks ago, chapter 8, the churches of Macedonia, these very impoverished, very poor, matter of fact, the Bible uses the word that means poverty down to the depths. These poor people of Macedonia were an example of sacrificial giving to the church at Corinth. I mean, they gave sacrificially, verse 2 and 3 of chapter 8. They loved the Lord deeply, verses 5, verse number 8. I mean, the, the church at Macedonia was a great example, but here in chapter 9, Paul lets the church at Corinth know, I'm also using you as an example to the churches of Macedonia. I'm letting them know of your desire to give. I'm letting them know of the forwardness of your mind. That, that you were ready to take an offering a year ago, but we couldn't, we couldn't collect it and we couldn't get it to Jerusalem for, the Bible doesn't give us the reason, but we couldn't get it to Jerusalem for whatever reason. So uh, I'm just telling them, those in in Macedonia, what it is that you're doing in the heart that you have to give. In other words, it's kind of like this. I'm taking your strengths and I'm telling the church at Macedonia about them because I want them to be stronger in that area. And then I've taken the church at Macedonia's strengths and I'm giving them to you because I need you to be stronger in that area. In other words, we could say it this way. The Bible is using the example of other believers in other churches to encourage other believers and other churches. Sometimes people say this. They say this. Thinking spiritual. They are thinking they're spiritual. And if you've said this, I don't know, so please don't come. And don't, if you email me, it's bernie.lund at canyonridgebaptist.com. Um, but people will come to me and they'll say this. I don't think it's anybody's business about my relationship with God. It's just Jesus and me. Well, I mean, you could think that. You're just entirely wrong in thinking that. 
Why? Because the Bible says repeatedly that we're to encourage one another, to provoke one another, to love and good works. Matter of fact, Hebrews 10, 23, let us consider one another to provoke them to love and good works. We see in this example that the church at Corinth is encouraging the church at Macedonia. The Christians in Macedonia are encouraging the Christians in Corinth. We're told repeatedly, the apostle Paul says to, says to grow by watching me, follow me, whose faith follow. In other words, the Christian life is not a life that is to be lived in, in a, if you will, in, a, in a, a, a protected area where nobody sees or area of tremendous cover or concealment. No, the Christian life is to be lived out in the open and it is to be an example of believers everywhere of your love and devotion to Jesus Christ and your life is to encourage them in their love for the Lord. So don't let your insecurities keep you from being motivated by seeing other people do stuff? You say, well, I could never do it like them. Well, maybe you can never do it like them, but now you can do it. Now you can see it done. Now you can see great things done. Isn't it true that when somebody goes before us and does something before us, that it helps us be willing to do it? I hate burpees. If you don't know what a burpee is, praise God, don't learn. It's a curse that you don't want. But basically a burpee is you jump on the ground, your chest and your quads hit the ground, and then you stand back up and jump six inches in the air. And we work out at a gym together where they like to program those, like a million of them, do one million burpees in 60 seconds. You say, really, a million? Probably more like 10, but it feels the same to me. And, and no lie, I, there's a bunch of people I work out with here. This is my reaction every time. I hate burpees. Burpees are stupid. Why do we have burpees here? I don't pay to come to a gym that has burpees. And then we start the workout, and I'll see Bernie over there and other people in the gym doing it. I'll see my brother-in-law, Charlie Hughes, 73 years old, sitting in the back here. He, he's, he's, it's taken him a while to do a burpee, but he's over there doing burpees. I'm kicking the ground. I'm mad. But eventually, I start doing burpees. Why? Because there's other people that have done them before me. This year, our staff, it's an annual thing. This is the second year that we just did it, but we did a polar bear plunge the week of Christmas. So the whole staff, we go down to the ocean, we all jump in, and I know people from other states are like, it's not a polar bear plunge unless the water's frozen over. Whatever. We go and we do a polar bear plunge. You can join us next year. You can play all you want. And this year, we're going to do it. And I thought, okay, I'm just going to do this. And every year, I have to really think, psych myself up for it. And I go to do it. And it's like three, two, one, go. And uh, Zane Garza, our youngest assistant pastor, he takes off. Bree, who's uh, assistant supervisor over in our daycare, they both take off and they run. And I, this is what I'm thinking, because I'm going to go in really slow, kind of catch my breath, warm up. They just go for it. And I'm wait, I wait till they come up, because I thought they might die it's so cold and I thought if they die we need somebody to do the service right here so I just got to wait when they came up I went in and just why because somebody went before me Paul is using this example to the church at Corinth that these people are have been a blessing to you and you've been a blessing to them and he's told the church at Macedonia guys they've done this and if they can do it you can do it You say, well, that sounds like a high school football coach. There's a lot of similarities there. 
If they can do it by the grace of God and God is no respecter of persons, then you can do it by the grace of God who is no respecter of persons. But we see a possible discouragement in the making in verse number three. Yet have I sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this behalf, that, as I said, ye may be ready. Lest happily, if they of Macedonia come with me and find you unprepared, we that we say not ye should be ashamed of this same confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren that they would go before unto you and make up beforehand your bounty, whereof ye had noticed before that the same might be ready as a matter of bounty and not as of covetousness. The possible discouragement would have been the fact that the church at Corinth wasn't ready for the offering that Paul had been telling the people of Macedonia they were ready to give. And so, so he says, uh, I sent the brethren, Titus and some of the other people that were part of Paul's missionary team, to make sure that they were ready to give. He says, lest or unless our boasting. Now, the word boasting here is not a word for foolish bragging. It's not a word for, for arrogance. It's rather a word for encouragement of hope. Like if they did it, you can do it. I know you can do it because God worked through them. It's an encouragement of hope. And they were encouraging the church at Macedonia. They were helping the church at Macedonia to know that if God has been faithful to the church at Corinth, then he will be faithful to them. And so Paul didn't want them coming in the church at Corinth not be ready for the offering to be given because if we come, notice what he says in verse number three, yet I said the brethren, lest my boasting of you should be in vain or empty or worthless or without merit or value. You ever have somebody like say something like this? Uh, it's the best hamburger you'll ever have in your life. It's so good. I've got a friend. I don't know what he means by this. He goes, it's slap your mama good. I said that to my mom one time. She said, it's shoot your son in the foot good. I called my brother. Come, mom's got something to do to you. Um, But you ever have anybody that they say, oh, this is so amazing. You're going to love it. And then you take it and you're like, I mean, it's, 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 it's okay. It's kind of like in and out. I mean, I, I can eat it. It didn't kill me, but I'm not going to go to bed thinking about it either. I'm just not going to do it. What they do, they oversold it. Well, Paul is saying, I don't want these guys to come because I know your heart and I don't want you to be embarrassed. Verse number five, we that we say not ye should be ashamed. We, we don't want you to be embarrassed. I don't want to be embarrassed. I don't want to hurt the work of Christ. So we have some organization now going into the giving. Sometimes people think, I, don't, I think that there shouldn't be any organization. You just do what God says. Well, I think you should do what God says. But the Bible says, let all things be done decently and in order. And as we talk about faith promise missions giving, missions giving without organization is is bizarre. So there has to be some organization to it. And we don't want to find you unprepared, verse number four. So we want to make sure that you are taking up, the Bible uses this this word in verse number five. Uh, We want to make sure you're taking up an offering because we want this offering, look at the end of verse number five, to be a matter of bounty. What does the word bounty mean? Or it means gift or contribution and not of covetous. In other words, Paul is saying, we don't want to have to come and try to force you to give and manipulate you to give to get the offering. We know that you want to give. We know you need to be prepared to give. So we want this offering to be an issue of, of bounty, of blessing, of generosity, of a gift, as opposed to like, I have to do this or, or I'm just going to, or, or, or Paul's going to be really mad at me. But that would be the covetous. And Paul says, no, I 
that's not what I want at all. I want you to give because you want to give. I want you to give because you're prepared to give. I want you to give because you have a desire to give. They're going to give, and verses 6 to the end of the chapter, the Apostle Paul leaves a sanctifying instruction for the church. Well, what's this sanctifying instruction? Look at verse number 6. But this I say, he which soweth sparingly shall reap also sparingly. And he which soweth bountifully shall reap also bountifully. This is the spiritual law of what we call sowing and reaping. The spiritual law of sowing and reaping. And you have to envision, by and large, the culture, the Corinth, Corinth was not specifically this, they would have all understood this. They lived in an agrarian culture, an agricultural culture. And in that culture, they would have understood that most people would have had a small plot of land and they'd be called farmers. If you go to third world countries today, I've been to several, people will say, oh, they have a farm. And you go, I went and looked and I'm thinking farm like in Colorado or, or Nebraska. And it's more along the lines of what we might call like a big garden. Maybe half an acre, maybe the wealthy people, an acre. And so that would have been very, very common in Paul's day. That's where you'd have your bazaars in the week and people would come and buy their meat and their vegetables at them. And it's still that way, like I said, in a large part of the world. And so Paul is using this imagery of a man who is sowing. He would soweth. The word soweth here means to scatter. And it takes its meaning from, you've probably seen uh, pictures of, of men in the first century, second century, that have a bag over their shoulder and seed in the bag. And they, and they take their hand and they cast it into the ground and they throw it with some force because they want it to stick into the moistened dirt. And, and they throw it in there and they throw it. And Paul says this principle that we all understand, if you sow sparingly or you don't give very much then much seed, then you're not going to reap very much in the time of harvest. I mean, it's obvious, right? Let's see if we can understand it a little bit better. If you have a plot of land and you're going to grow corn on it and you've got a half acre of land or an acre or whatever, and you go out and you put three kernels kernels of corn in there, you're going to get, if you put them all in the same, same hole in the ground, which you have to do three to one to get one, you're going to get probably one stalk of corn with a couple of ears of corn. Well, if that's all that you get during harvest time, you can't come out and get mad. Like, God, why did we only get one stalk of corn? Well, because you only planted three kernels of corn. But I wanted to sow sparingly and reap bountifully. Yeah, but it doesn't work that way. Why doesn't it work? Because it's a physical law. If you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. If you sow three kernels of corn, praise the Lord, you got one stalk of corn. Be happy with that. Two to three years of corn, be happy with that. But I want a lot of corn during harvest. Well, then you have to sow a lot of seed during the planting season. Well, how much seed do I sow? How big a harvest do you want? Now, I want to be careful here because I don't want anybody to think that we would, as a church, encourage the idea of what is called prosperity theology. We do not give to get rich. 
And we don't give because we want all this financial blessing. And if you, I've heard people say, if you give today, you'll be a check for $1,500 in your mailbox on Tuesday. I've been giving for 49 years, literally. I was taking offerings to the nursery, missions offering. Now, my parents gave them, but I paid them back when I got older. Um, mission, I'm kidding. Missions offering to the nursery, 49 years. I've never got a check for $1,500 on a Tuesday. I've never had that. There is no guarantee that if you give today that God will make you wealthy tomorrow. Matter of fact, you say, well, why do you give today? Well, Jesus is very clear in the Sermon on the Mount. Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt and where thieves break through and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust doth corrupt and where thieves do not break through nor steal. The reason that we give is not so that we can have a lot on this earth. The reason that we give is to obey the Father, fruit in in heaven and people saved on this earth. But there's still the principle of sowing and reaping. If you want 3,000 ears of corn, I'm told by corn farmers, my brother-in-law's one, grew up on a farm in Indiana growing corn. That's all they do in Indiana, basketball, corn, that's it, nothing else. I'm told that if you want 3,000 ears of corn, that you have to plant about 9,000 kernels of corn in the ground, roughly. Well, I got 3,000 ears. Good. Well, you know that that guy planted as much corn as he could. I watch slow TV. I didn't know that was a thing, but my daughter tells me that's a term. Slow TV. And one of the things I love to watch, I love to watch farmers and combines. I like to watch people who are felling trees, farmers and combines, and weightlifting videos. They don't connect, but that's what I like. And you see some of these combines today that are ran by GPS, and they're putting seed in the ground, and they're able to computerize, they've computerized the system, and they're able to understand, if you will, they're able to diagnose how many seeds that piece of ground can have and so sometimes they're bringing the seed closer and sometimes it's further away what are they trying to do they're trying to maximize the sowing potential of the land why because they want to maximize the harvest they don't get they they don't get blessed for the planting they get blessed in the harvest and that's what Paul is helping the church at Corinth to understand you have a lot of money you're a wealthy place Understand that there is a law here that God blesses those who give. That's what he's saying. And God blesses those who give. It's not always financial. Matter of fact, I would say most of the time it's probably not. There's no pillow as soft as going to bed at, in peace. I mean... Growing up, my parents always gave a lot. They were a blessing for sure, still do. I can remember as a kid, God blessing and stuff never wearing out. Now, those of you that are old enough, you remember the tough skins? Tough skins that you'd buy, they were like jeans that were nine inches thick. Good thing I grew up in Washington State, we'd wear those. I don't think I ever gave a pair of pants away without outgrowing them. My shoes would last forever. My friends would get new stuff. They're like, Chris, are you going to get new shoes? I'm like, I don't know. I think they're growing with me. So you think God did that? I think he probably did. 
He blessed. There was a bountiful reception because of a purposeful giving. Verse number seven. Every man according as he purposed in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity. God loveth a cheerful giver. Every man as he intends. In other words, this isn't a requirement. This isn't a tithing call. This is a giving to missions call. This is a giving to a, a need call, a need to the church at Jerusalem, the, the grandmother church of the church at Corinth. This is a need. And so we want you to purpose in your heart. We want you to choose in your heart to give, not grudgingly out of grief or sorrow to make you sorrow, uh, not grudgingly or of necessity. Necessity, uh, as a necessity means as opposed to personal choice. We don't want you to feel like you have to do any of this. We just want you to understand God loves, that's the word agape, God loves or delights in a cheerful or joyful or happy or glad giver. God, God loves that. God loves happy people who give. Can I, can I be candid with you for a minute? A lot of guests here, thanks for coming. But I want you to know that at Canyon Ridge Baptist Church, we make no bones about encouraging people to give to the cause of Jesus Christ. We make no bones about encouraging people to give so that other people can hear the gospel. We, we make no apologies about encouraging people to give because we want the grace of God to abound in their life. You say, what do you mean grace of God? Well, look at verse number eight. And God is able to make all grace, that's the supernatural enabling of God, God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you having all sufficiency in all things may abound to every good work. You're financially blessed, but we want your work, this is what Paul is saying to them, we want your work to go beyond just your church. We want your your work to go all the way into Jerusalem. Verse number nine, as it is written, he hath dispersed abroad. He hath given, talking about God has given to the poor. His righteousness remaineth forever. Our church at Corinth, God's going to use you to be a blessing to the church at Jerusalem because the church at Jerusalem has a tremendous need and Macedonia is participating and you're participating and others for sure. And we want to make sure that you understand that as you give, it is God that is doing the work in the hearts and lives of the people. In verse number 10, now he that ministereth seed to the sower, both ministereth bread for your food and multiply your seed sown and increase the fruit of your righteousness. Make no mistake, God blesses generous people. God blesses generosity, especially generosity in the area of the gospel. You say, well, where do you see the gospel? Verse number 15, Paul talks about this, and he really brings this idea of the special offering for the church at Jerusalem to a close with this phrase, thanks be unto God for his unspeakable gift. Well, what's the unspeakable gift of God? The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That gift that is so far beyond our understanding that the Son of God would leave heaven come to earth, be spit upon, mocked, and ultimately crucified so that you and I could have heaven as our home. That's unspeakable to think that we were destined for an eternity in hell with no hope. Listen to me, no hope. If you're here today without Christ, the Bible uses this phrase, you are without hope. Why? Because there's no means of salvation apart from Jesus Christ. Listen, 
make us better than you. We were all in the same boat. We were all born unrighteous, and we're all sinners. There's none righteous, no, not one. We all come to before God as dirty, unclean vessels. But because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the Bible says his blood washes away all of our sin. You say, Chris, do you really believe that? Oh, absolutely. 100%. Well, why would you believe that? Oh, I could tell you about a thousand different reasons apologetically from the scripture and and make a thousand different arguments that are well-studied and well-versed and well-researched. But let me just tell you this morning, the transformation that he made in my own life, the work that he did in my own heart, I was lost and undone and on my way to hell without hope, without any chance of having anything at all insofar as a relationship with God. But Jesus Christ brought me to himself. He convicted me of sin, of righteousness and judgment. And I bowed my knee to him and I accepted him as my personal Lord and Savior. And he changed my world. I have peace. Uh, My wife Debbie's back here. We've been married 27 years. My daughter Natalie is here. We've been married 23 years. No, she's 23. My daughter Judith is over working with some kids over in one of the clubs. Oh, Judith's here. Judith is here. I didn't see you. All right, good. Um, Finally, I'm glad you finally made it to church today. That's a blessing. Proud of you. Yeah, that's good. You got that bus pass I sent. Um, Judith, uh, Judith is back here. And let me just tell you, I have a house full of women. And I go to sleep at peace. You say, what does he mean by that? Get a house full of women. And you'll know the miraculous nature of God with that statement. <laughs> yeah, there's peace. There's peace because of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we get so stressed out in our world and we think Christianity is a religion of, of stress and get things done. No, it's a religion of peace and submission to the Lord. That's what it is. Paul talks about in the scripture through Jesus talking, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world give, give I unto you. Uh, I'm sorry, it was Peter who said this, grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. How do we have peace? The gospel of Jesus Christ. If you're here today and your insides are all torn up and you're trying to figure out life and you have no hope and you're not sure what happens to you when you die, can I encourage you today? Trust Jesus Christ as Savior. We're talking about giving to missions. We're talking about taking money that is, that is ours. That God doesn't even require it. He asks for it, but he doesn't require it. And, and, and we're asking God to, to prompt our heart and to tell us what to give, either weekly or biweekly or monthly or a one-time gift. And we're asking God, God, tell us what you want us to give because we want to see the gospel go out through the nations. Why do we want to see the gospel go out through the nations? Because people all over the world need to hear the gospel. People need to get saved. People need to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. And we are the ones who get to participate in that. The whole world is without Christ. There's more people every day dying and going to hell in 2022 than at any other time in human history. You say, how do you know that? Because there's more people alive today than any other time in human history. I'm told about one person a second dies people who study this say that well over 98% of the people who died will die and spend eternity in hell. I think God wants to use us to do a great work for Christ. 
Maybe we can sacrifice something for him. Maybe there's something we could give. I know there's people in this room that live in smaller houses than they'd have to if they didn't give to Faith Promise Missions. They drive used cars because they give to Faith Promise Missions. They take staycations as opposed to vacations because they give to Faith Promise Missions. Listen to me. I'm not talking a little bit. I'm talking we've got people in this room give $500 a week, $600 a week, so that people all over the world can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, I'd never do that. You don't have to. God loves a cheerful giver. You have to do what God tells you to do. It's, not, it's a matter of bounty, not a matter of covetous. But make no mistake, the world needs to hear the gospel. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you've studied the scripture very much, you understand it seems like the Lord's coming back real, real soon. Real, real soon. I'd hate to stand before the Lord with a giant portfolio knowing that he asked me to give so that people could hear the gospel. You say, well, he didn't ask me to give. Fine, no problem. But I'd hate to stand before him if he told me to give something and I was unwilling to do it. Do you believe that? Do you believe it? I mean, we just exposited the text. Didn't even have time to get to all of it, but it talks about gospel from 10 to 15, so we talked about the gospel. But do you believe that? Oh, I, 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 do, you, do you believe it? If you believe it, it should transform the way that you think and the way that you act and the way that you live. See, believe always changes behavior. If you really believe that donuts are bad, you won't eat any when you leave. If you say donuts are bad, but you don't believe it, you'll probably grab some when you leave. But belief changes behavior. In March of 2003, Pastor Roger Spradlin of Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, received a letter from Karen Watson. Karen was a missionary in Iraq in 2003 who was working with a Baptist international aid organization to get money to that war-torn country. Not money, I'm sorry, food and purified water that war, to that war-torn country. She was actually working on a project to get 3 million pounds of food into Mosul, which was the heat of the battle. She was resolved to obey God with gladness as he called her to follow him. And he, she, was, she was resolved to obey him past comforts of home and into a land where millions needed to know him. I mean, she's a hero. In a letter dated March 7th, 2003, she wrote to her pastor. And these were her opening words. You should be opening this letter in the event of my death. She was 38 along with three other humanitarian workers for this Baptist aid organization. Her car was ambushed on March 15th, eight days after she wrote the letter. Eight days after she wrote the letter. And she was killed along with Larry and Jean Elliott of Cary, North Carolina, and David McDonald of Rowlett, Texas. She says this in the letter. 
When God calls, there are no regrets. I tried to share my heart with you as much as possible when I was at home. My heart for the nations. I wasn't called to a place. I was called to him. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. To obey was my objective. To suffer was expected. His glory was my reward. His glory is my reward. She goes on. One of the most important things to remember right now is to preserve the work. I'm writing this as if I'm still working among my people group. Irony. I thank, you, I thank you all so much for your prayers and support writing to our church. Surely your reward in heaven will be great for sending missionaries. Thank you for investing in my life and the spiritual and its spiritual well-being. Keep sending missionaries. Keep raising up fine young pastors. In regard to any funeral service, keep it small and simple. Yes, simple. Just preach the gospel. Be bold and preach the life-saving, life-changing, forever eternal gospel. Give glory and honor to our Father. She wrote a poem, The Missionary's Heart. Care more than some think is wise. Risk more than some think is safe. Dream more than some think is practical. Expect more than some think is possible. I was not called to comfort or success, but to obedience. And then she closes the letter with this. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. There is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving him. I love you and my church family in his care, Karen. Karen believed this. Karen believed this. Do you? Do you believe that? Do you believe that? Our prayer today is that you do. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus as your Savior, our prayer is today that you will accept Jesus Christ alone as your Savior. I don't know your soul, but Jesus does. And your soul will go on for eternity, either in heaven or in hell. And there is no joy outside of knowing Jesus and serving Him. Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.